0: Well, thank you so much for inviting me back to preach to you this morning. It is absolutely my pleasure um, to minister God's Word to you. It's always a pleasure to be invited to minister God's Word to a congregation, but if you get back invited a second time, um, then it's a double pleasure because it couldn't have been that bad the first time around, I suppose. Of course I don't know you intimately as a congregation. It may be that you're here this morning and this is the first time you've been to this church or to church at all. Or or it may be that you've know you been nibbling on the edges of church for a while and you're wondering about what it means to be a Christian and what is the Christian faith all about. Could be that you are a teenager, you've grown up in a Christian home and Yes, you would say you're a Christian, but you're at that point in life where you're beginning to think things through for yourself, and you're sort of wondering, is this really it, that which I have been taught? Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long, long time, and you say, don't worry, Pastor, I've got it down. I know what the faith is all about. I understand it completely and fully. In which case, I would ask for your patience this morning, because maybe, just maybe... Um, we might be able to change some thoughts about what we think following Jesus really is like. If you were to choose one story, any story in all of the Bible that sums up what it means to follow Jesus, which one would it be? And if you were to ask John the Apostle, Jesus' best friend, what one story sums up what it means to follow Jesus without a shadow of a doubt he would say the wedding at Cana of Galilee. Now how do I know that? Well let me share with you a couple things that are going on. When you read in John's Gospel chapter 1 the first thing we are being told is that um, Jesus was calling his disciples and his disciples were coming to him and this is absolutely the first thing that he ever did with his new disciples. You know how it is, what the president does on day one, as he repeatedly tells us, is a matter of importance, It's a matter of significance. The second thing why we know it isn't very, very important is because in the last verse, I think it's verse 11, it says, And Jesus revealed His glory to them, and His disciples put their faith in Him. So in chapter 1 He calls them, in chapter 2 He does the wedding at Cana of Galilee, and and then at the end of that the disciples put their faith in Him. So this has got to be, as it were, a little mini-gospel. And then there's one more reason why this is very important and probably sums up um, why John regards this as being so significant. And that is because the next thing that happens in chapter 2 is the cleansing of the temple. Now, if you're really sharp, you'd be going, hey, wait a minute. The cleansing of the temple is not supposed to come until the final week of Jesus' life when he goes up to Jerusalem. So it's a bit of a problem, I suppose, but, you know, Jesus could have cleansed the temple at the beginning of his uh, ministry, and he could have cleansed it again at the end of his ministry. Or it could be that John has arranged the gospel, not to trick us, not to be dishonest, but arranged the gospel to show the significance of this moment. So, for example, um, let me go far back enough in history to be safe. If you were um, writing a biography of, of Ronald Reagan, maybe you have no longer sooner started it than you would be talking about Reagan being at the great wall that divided East and West Germany and saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's not that you didn't know where it fell it is that you were presenting it as a dynamic moment that needs to be understood as of supreme importance and then lastly, um, John he, he loves symbolism especially he loves the symbolism of sevens and he's got his whole, his whole gospel um, surrounded by, by seven what he doesn't call the miracles he calls them seven signs because they're of significance and this is the first of it. Signs, So it is of incredible significance, and it probably sums up for us just what does it mean to follow Jesus as he takes his disciples off to the wedding. Well, weddings, um, like our time, you know, they're happy events, they're exciting events. There are events where the whole community of your friends and family come together. There's joy, there's, there's singing and dancing, there, there's feasting. But in the ancient world, it was even more than that. The whole village would be invited without exception. And um, it didn't go on for one day. It went on for seven days. And, and during those seven days, the groom, the bride and the groom were regarded and treated as the king and queen of the whole village. So here is Jesus. He's just called his disciples. It's the first thing he's going to do with them. And he takes them to a party, to a wedding party, where there's a king and queen of the village. It's going on for seven days. And there's singing, and there's dancing, and there's joy, and there's celebration. If I were Jesus, and I intended that in the year 2016 there should be 2.2 billion people who say that they are followers of me, I don't think I would take my disciples to a wedding and a party first thing out. I mean, isn't there business to be done? Isn't there discipleship to be done? I mean, we've got the whole world to change. The kingdom of God is going to come in, and the first thing you do is take your disciples to a wedding, to a party? Doesn't quite make sense, does it? It's turning our thinking already quite upside down. And you know what happens at the wedding. They get to the wedding, and suddenly after they've been there for a while, the wine runs out. Now, that's pretty embarrassing. I mean, you know, you get invited to a wedding and you say, I think you would like a second glass of wine, please. And the waiter says to you, I'm sorry, sir, it's run out. And, and you know, the tension that goes on on occasions like this, if I may be a little flippant, you know. Um, the bride's family is saying to the groom's party, I know we could never have trusted you. You said you'd bring enough wine and you haven't. And the other side saying, if your Uncle Jack hadn't had so much to drink, we wouldn't have run out. Yeah, it's embarrassing. But in the ancient world, it's even more than embarrassing. It actually has legal implications. You see, a marriage is a covenant celebration. There's an agreement going on. And there's an agreement as to who will provide what, and it's a legal agreement. And there's an agreement even with the guests as to what they will bring to provide. And so for the wine to have run out is not just an embarrassment, it's a legal problem. It is really a serious problem. And here it is, it, it has absolutely um, run out. And suddenly, the next thing that happens is Mary goes up to her son, Jesus. Remember, Jesus hasn't even done a miracle yet. She goes up to his son, Jesus, and says, Jesus, the wine has run out. I mean, what's with Mary? Why is she interfering? I mean, even if she is family or wishes them well, why would she go to her son, Jesus, who's never performed a miracle in his life, for example, and say, son, the wine has run out. And basically, Jesus says, literally in the Greek, it's it's not quite as rude as it sounds, really it is not, but he basically says, woman, why are you involving me in this? My hour has not yet come. Uh, Being paraphrased, it's like, look, Mom, this is not why I came into the world. I didn't come into the world to turn up at people's weddings and make sure that they have enough wine to drink. Okay? I mean, I know a lot of people will come to think about me that way, that Jesus is the person you run to when there's a problem and he'll quick fix it for you and mend the fences for you. Look, this is not what my hour is about. That word hour is pretty ominous, you know. The R is when he will die on the cross and the full significance of his death. Mom, this is not why I came into the world. And she, like a good mom, you know how moms are, totally ignores her son and turns to the servants and says, look, just do whatever he tells you to do. What a wonderful line. Huh? I mean I don't have to point out that line to you, do I? Just do Whatever he tells you to do. It's a great line. Well, now John says as you look around the room over on the side, there are six water jars and um, he actually gives us the measurement for them. He, he estimates that there's somewhere between, between the six jars the, the water jars there's somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons um, of water in there. And he explains for us gentiles why these big six water jars are over there. They're over there because the, it's the type of thing that the Jews use for ceremonial washing and cleansing and rituals and so on. And, and and Jesus tells the servants he says, "Go and fill those jars with, with, um, with, bring those jars with water, and they fill them up. I love this little detail they fill this up right to the brim you couldn 't get one more ounce in those and six water jars that are filled up into the brim, oh, one hundred and eighty gallons of it and and then Jesus without people realizing it, turns the water into wine. And he tells the servant, go dip your ladle in there, take it over to the master of ceremonies and have him taste it, because his job was to make sure that everything tasted well and was going well. And, and, and he, he puts it to his lips, and he drinks it, and he goes, oh my gosh, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. And it's so good. Then he leaves the servant and he goes over and he finds the groom. And he says, what are you possibly thinking? You've left the best wine for last. Everybody brings out the the good wine first. And then later on as the party has gone along and people have had too much to drink, that's actually literally in the text, um, then that's when you bring out the cheap stuff. But you have saved the best for last. All 180 gallons of it. Now, let me try and put it in today's language, just so you can see how shocking and how scandalous this is. Imagine, I come to church this morning, and um, you say, Pastor, so nice to have you visiting with us. My daughter is getting married this afternoon. All the church is going to be there. And it was nice to have you speak to us this morning. Would you please come to my wedding? And I say, sure, I'd be delighted to come to your wedding. So we come over to the wedding, and everyone who is gathered is having a great time. And then I hear a murmur through the crowd, and it says, the wine has run out. And so I, the visiting pastor, go over to you, the hostess, and I say, I'm sorry to hear the wine has run out. And she says, yes. It's terribly embarrassing. That group back there has had far too much. And, and I say, don't worry. I have some wine in my truck outside. And you would say, well, I guess that would help. But look how many guests that we have. And I said, don't worry. I have 180 gallons of wine out there in my truck. I bet you'd never invite me back to preach. And then you're thinking, yeah, but anybody who's got 180 gallons of wine in his truck, besides probably being an alcoholic, it's got to be really cheap stuff. And I come and I bring it in, and you look at the label, and I wish it said Rothschild, but that's not my name. But, you know, you look at the label and you go, oh my goodness, this is the best wine I know that there is. I went online to find out what good wine goes for. You know, it can sell for 30 grand a bottle. You take 30 grand a bottle and multiply it by 120 to 180 gallons, we're talking about quarter of a million dollars worth of wine. And now the question becomes, who is this guy? Who is this man? Who is this man who who can carry that much fine wine around him, you'd come to the conclusion that either I'm a millionaire, don't jump to that conclusion, or or that I must own the vineyard. And that's the point. The text ends up by saying, and Jesus revealed His glory to them. They go, oh my goodness, this must be the man who owns the vineyard. They're beginning to think this must be the creator of the heavens and the earth who can turn water into wine and turn water into wine in a scandalous quantity and have the absolutely the finest and the best gallons of wine that you can ever imagine. And so the point of this story is it's revealing to them who Jesus is. Jesus is the Father's agent in creation. By him and for him and to him and unto him and in him, says Paul, all things are made. Jesus is the one who is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And here in this incredible miracle of providing wine from water and in scandalous supply, and the finest of wines it's becoming very, very clear to them that He's revealing His glory to, him, to them as the eternal Son of God. And we're told they're beginning to get it, and, and, and they, are, they are putting their faith in Him. And because we're not Jews, it takes us a long time to see this. If we were to go back into the Old Testament, and took some time this morning to go through the Old Testament, there was a time when Jacob, for example, said, when Messiah comes, he will wash his clothes in wine. In other words, it'll be so awesome, it'll be so plentiful, he, he he will provide in such scandalous supply that he could do his laundry and wine. That's how great it is when the kingdom of God comes. Or Isaiah had said, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest wines. On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that, is, that, that enfolds all peoples, the sheets that cover all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And suddenly, if you're a Jew, you're beginning to realize this is The promised Christ. Well, to go back to our opening question, what is this really all about? How does this sum up what following Jesus is like? And the first thing I would like to say is, it says a lot about religion. I know it's fashionable these days to criticize religion because millennials um, don't like religion, etc., but... You know, it's built into the text itself. The text itself says that the six big jars of water over there were the type used by the Jews for ceremonial and religious washings. And and John... Because he calls his seven miracles seven signs, and, and because he puts such significance in numbers and in symbolism, I can't help thinking that John is saying when religion runs out, when religion runs out, Jesus replaces it with a relationship that it's like going to a wedding. If your faith in Jesus keeps running out. It's become terribly barren. It's more like going to a funeral than it is like going to a wedding where where all your family is there and you're celebrating together in the grace of Jesus Christ and in the joy of Jesus Christ and who He is and, and, and what He does for you. Then, then I I want to suggest to you that, that you're beginning to miss it because following Jesus is is, is like Being in a joyous place with your brothers and sisters. Following Jesus is about enjoying and delighting in and possessing the best there is. And following Jesus is is coming to someone who provides His grace for you in absolutely scandalous supply that can never, ever, 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 ever run out. I don't know about you. But that's how much grace I need. And I don't know about you, but I take comfort from the fact that in the Lord's Prayer, we are told to pray every time, forgive us this day our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I don't know about you, but but I read the front of the bulletin, and it says, for you have drawn me with cords of love, and you forgive me daily and hourly. I'm always in need of His grace. My religious supply of water is always running out. And here He is in all of His magnificence and His glory, giving me His grace over and over and over, and supplying all that I could ever possibly need, and in such absolutely scandalous supply. And no, it's no longer about, Lord, I'm going to try real hard today just not to sin at all. I'm going to dedicate myself again. I'm going to work myself up in, in trying hard until I drive myself crazy. I heard just in this past week of a beloved girl who took her own life, who was supposedly a Christian, and her mom and dad said to me, well, she just dedicated her life to the Lord over and over and over again. You know, there comes a time to back off. There comes a time to bathe in His grace. There comes a time to delight in His forgiveness. There's a time when religion runs out and only the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient. I had a lady in our church in Maryland who was... um. Wonderful lady, married to a man who never, ever came to church. He was a good husband, she said, and he was certainly a great father. We noticed that. He was always at the games with his kids. And we wondered, with such a lovely wife, how come he he would never come to church with her? And um, he was an alcoholic. And uh, he's dying, and she calls me. And believe it or not, she's excited, not that he's dying, but that he's calling the pastor. He says, Pastor, my husband wants to talk to you. And I go in and I'm talking with him. And he says, I have a story to tell you. It was in World War II. We were in the jungles of the Pacific Islands. We were walking through the jungle, the whole group of us, when we heard sounds behind us and we knew that the Japanese were coming up behind us, so we climbed up into trees. And when the Japs came underneath us, we dropped out of the trees and ran our daggers into their backs. And when I picked up the man whose back I had run the dagger through, he turned out to be my best friend who we had got separated from in the jungle. Pastor, can God forgive me? You know What a shame to spend your life turning to alcohol when you could have had the delightful grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, although, as I told him, that, sir, was a mistake, not a sin, but let's not get into that. There is no sin that my Lord cannot forgive. His grace is there in scandalous supply. If there's any sin in your life or mine that we're still remembering, we're still carrying around, still driving us to depression, still driving us to alcohol or whatever it is, look, let's lay it aside. He came with His grace and scandalous supply to forgive us of all of our sins. And even those sins that keep on plaguing us, so this Puritan would have to write on the front of our bulletin, for thou hast drawn me with your cords of love, and you forgive me daily and hourly. One Sunday, when I had come home from church and my wife had put lunch on the table, I had just come back from Marshalls where I would bought myself a brand new tie, and I was sort of proud of it. You know, I liked it. And I'm having the soup, and the soup drops onto my brand new tie. And I get up from the table and I say to my wife, Oh my, I spilled soup on my tie. And I go over and I turn the kettle on, and she says, What are you doing? I said, I'm going to pour hot water on it. She said to me, you know, hot water can set stains. What you need to do is to pour cold water onto it. Now, don't take my illustration too far. But when we sin, we can pour hot water on it and set the stain. Or else we can go and bathe in the grace, on the love, and the forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ, and those stains can, instead of getting set, can begin to loosen up. And that's the point of this story, that Jesus invites us into the joyful community of his people, and that there he supplies for us the finest of wine, and he gives it to us in a scandalous supply, so that it will never ever run out. And the point of this story is not that belonging to Jesus is like going to a wedding, it is that going to a wedding is like belonging to Jesus, because Jesus is the wedding. <laughs> Remember, um, Paul is describing what if husbands and wives should um, treat each other, and at the end of it he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. The real wedding is Christ and the church. I love a little phrase Martin Luther has, He talked about the wedding ring of faith. When we come to trust in Jesus Christ, we become His bride. And you know what it's like when you become someone's bride. If you're in college and you haven't got married yet, you may want to check this out, but all of his or her debts become your debts. And if you marry someone who is well off, then... He or she being well off is going to have a profound influence on your life because what is belonging to the one now legally belongs to the other. Legally belongs to the other. What is his is mine when it comes to Jesus and what is mine is his. Being married to him means that my sins and my shortcomings have become his, and when they are comes, he's going to die for them, and he's going to pay off every single debt I ever have. And then what is his becomes mine, and what is his is his perfect righteousness. In technical terms, we call this the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. It's not just that he pays off all my debts, but that he gives me an unlimited balance on my credit card, so to speak. So it's not that when my debts got paid off, I'm no longer in debt, but I'm still poor. It's that now that I'm married to him, I am rich. And you say, that's kind of dangerous, pastor. That seems to, don't let my kids think that if you belong to Jesus, you can just take a credit card and go out and spend all that you want. And if you raise that objection, I'll say, thank you for raising that objection. That means I've stated the doctrine correctly, because in Romans, Paul hears somebody at the back of the room say, hey, Paul, does that mean that we can go on sinning so that grace may abound? And he says, of course not. Christians don't think that way. When you know the grace that he's given to us, when you delight in the forgiveness and the wealth, and when we begin to take our identity now, not from our jobs, not from our failure, not from what people say about us, but when we take our identity from being the bride of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the daughter of the King, then that begins to transform everything about how I view myself and about how I view the world. And then we are told, He thus revealed His glory, and His disciples put their faith in Him. in Jesus. It's not about religion that's always run out. It's not about saying, I'm a Presbyterian to prove that you're a good Christian. It's not about saying, I'm a Pentecostal to prove that you're a powerful Christian. It's about saying, I belong to Jesus. He's invited me to His wedding. He, he has joined me to Himself as His bride. All that is mine is His, and all that is His is mine. And in the joy of this moment where we're kings and queens of the village for for the duration of the wedding, I, I see His glory. I know His glory. I love His grace. By His grace, I'll never take it for granted, and I'll never abuse it by His grace. But it's there, it's there in all of its scandalous supply. And I want you to know, it's the best thing there is. And there's nothing else like it. And I invite you this morning, whether for the first time, or whether because it's something that you breathe in and breathe out every day of your life, let us put our faith in Him. because so we can safely trust in Him in who He is and what He's done for us. Shall we pray? Lord, You have absolutely taken us by surprise this morning with the story of the wedding. With just how scandalous is Your grace, and how wonderful is Your grace. You've shown us Your glory, Lord. We've caught a glimpse of it. Now by Your grace, help us to trust in You, to delight in You. Thank you for setting us here in the midst of this community of faith, in this family of yours, all of us being a part of the Bride of Christ. And thank you, Lord, not just for inviting your first disciples to the wedding, but thank you for inviting us now to the table to the wedding feast of the Lamb. We know, Lord, the real thing comes when we get to heaven. But thank you for spreading this table this morning with your bread and your wine, with your body and blood, so that we may taste again and be strengthened in your love and in your mercies. Bless us now, Lord, as we come to your table, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.